0: This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on
1: technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I'm Chris Cricho. And I'm Stephen Karadini, and today we're going to talk about people who don't want to do things. That's a very broad description, Stephen. That's, it's a very broad episode, Chris. This is
0: a very broad season, I'm pretty
1: sure. It's a very broad season. So, at the end of last episode, I... Briefly mentioned, as an aside, that there are people that don't want to go forward in specific ways, don't want to have a positive vision of the future that's different than the vision of the future that we have now. They don't want to change what's happening. So any positive vision of the future is going to have to come to grips with that, that your positive vision of the future is only one of many visions of the future. And any positive vision is going to have to include those people or have sufficient power to route around those people or some sort of way that you can address those people. Because a plan for the future that doesn't include naysayers is a pant with one leg. Not a plan.
0: A pant with one leg. I
1: like it. Yes. Or a pants with one leg. Or does it only a pant? I,
0: a pants with one leg. I like it. I also have to say as an aside that my nerdiness is going to bite me hard every time you say Vision of the Future, because there is in fact a Star Wars novel by Timothy Zahn published fifteen years ago or something like that called Vision of the Future. <laughs> and every time you say that, I'm just thinking Luke Skywalker and Mara Jade fighting their way through armies of clones.
1: Alright. So I that's don't know, man. two episodes and two references to Star Wars. We're 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 going strong on the art this season, but very specific. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're just working our way slowly toward the episode nine release in December.
1: That's the thing. So there you are.
0: One of the things that I've been thinking about a bunch as Stephen threw this topic at me this morning, as we said, this is going to be a by the seat of our one-legged pants, one-legged kind pants. of season. <laughs> is that. One of the challenges with dealing with change and visions of change desires for how we shape the future on the kind of whole cultural scale that we're audaciously throwing ourselves at, as we talked about in the last
1: episode. Although we'll talk about how whole culture is sort of a fallacy in and of itself in later episodes. And probably some in this episode, because so much
0: of... Real change that happens even at the level of large cultures is much more often, I think, the fruit of localist changes, of changes that happen at the level of communities, of groups of people who live near each other and have something in common with each other. And even insofar as we're dealing with globalized things in the form of the internet a lot of times what ends up actually happening, we've covered this in a variety of ways from a variety of angles in the in the past, but so often what ends up happening is actually you just form new small communities that happen to be, and this distinction is important, but that happen to be non-geographically co-located, that happen to be more ideologically co-located or interest-wise co-located. Maybe it's these for whatever reason why did model trains become the go-to example of internet clubs
1: uh well it's because people (laughs) who do model trains are like very technically oriented in their real lives usually and so it sort of overlaps easily with uh with the internet but you know like trains are like the greatest achievement of technology next to the internet in some ways like they're kind of amazing and the fact that that we got to trains before we got to cars is sort of mind-blowing in a way.
0: (laughs) But yeah, the fact that there are these sort of interest co-located and ideologically co-located groups on the internet doesn't change the fact that a lot of times real change comes out of small groups of people who are united around things that are important to them. And even when we look at the Grand sweeping historical moments of history. A lot of times they started in small communities of people thinking together, often living together or living very near each other and exchanging ideas. And they were technologically mediated in in whatever ways. We want to talk about the Reformation. Well, you can't do so without talking about the printing press because John Wycliffe tried it. Uh, 150 years earlier and basically
1: got nowhere because there was no printing press. Well, he didn't get nowhere. You're literally still talking about him. So he got somewhere. He just he didn't martyred. get where he wanted to go. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, that's probably not where he wanted to go ultimately, but... <laughs> And, and not martyred quite in the Zwingli
0: fashion of, I will go down swinging an axe.
1: Well, I mean, I just actually read about, listened to a podcast about Zwingli a little bit, and it wasn't really. It wasn't quite like it that. It wasn't no, quite but, like that. A bunch of people were attacking his city, and he was like, yes, I'm going to go be a civic part of this community. I'm going to defend the city. Yes.
0: He, he was doing the right thing. But it's, it's more fun to imagine Zwingli as this reformer who goes around swinging people
1: with an axe. I mean, he was probably still swinging an axe, but like, it, right. wasn't, it was for a good <laughs> defensive cause, at least. Well, it, but, I mean, we don't need to get into history of religion, but. Winning think,
0: Slowly, Season deb- 7, The Church History
1: Podcast. De- debat- debatably, the whole Wars of Religion thing was a bad idea. Debatably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were people who were obviously doing it at the time, so there was clearly not enough debate about whether or not this was a good thing to do.
0: Carry on. Which gets us at one of the other interesting things that I think we'll come back to off and on this season. There's a bunch of discussion in sort of public intellectual circles in America right now, including some interesting things in conservative Christian intellectual circles about liberalism and atomizing individualism in the context of liberalism. And how that fits in with questions around technology is important because one of the problems we identified last season, talking about reasons to reject certain kinds of technologies or reject them in certain degrees, is that they reinforce the worst sides of atomizing individualistic liberalism. Right. But there are lots of things, as Stephen's comment just alluded to, that we should and probably will, hopefully will, keep a hold of from the liberalism of the last several centuries, like... Not having wars of religion. Yeah, that would be a good thing. Maybe it's just me, but that does seem like a win. Yeah. On the other hand, it's not like we got away from wars of ideology because, hey, the 20th century.
1: Yeah, but to some extent, the idea of the war of religion was that your state had to have one single religion right. because you were a forced community at that point. Right. And so the idea of a forced community obviously it's changed dramatically to the other end of the pendulum where now there is uh, almost through technology, a sort of forced individuality. Right. And so this is actually a, a serendipitous sort of example that we didn't expect to have, but this, those are sort of the polar ends of the spectrum in, in that there's, there's this idea of the community so total and forced that you would go and kill someone because they are saying, we don't want to be a part of this community. Right. Or, The other end of the spectrum where it's saying, like, yeah, I mean, nothing really matters community-wise. You can just leave or stay or whatever, build a community, not tear one down, whatever, it's fine. It's just a thing. It's just not – it's transient. It's not meaningful in any objective sense. Obviously, 500 years ago, people felt differently about this. Right. So the big swing of those 500 years was not just that communities became unimportant – But it was that there was a set of expectations that were developed based off of even good things. I mean, people blame Calvin for individualism in some ways, and that's not entirely wrong. Right. People blame Calvin for
0: everything.
1: Well, I mean, Calvin wrote a lot, and there's a lot (laughs) you can blame him for. A lot. Yeah. So so there are good impulses even under these these things that the expectations spun out in bad ways and became sort of troubling and and in some cases extremely troubling and so the the impulse to conserve what is good there those mm-hmm. underlying tensions mm-hmm. and to push back on any changes to those sorts of good intentions as you conceive of them is something that we believe it, we understand and resonate with that right. there are good things to hold. Listeners of this podcast know that we generally are in the conservative end of the Christianity spectrum. And so we're not by any means saying like, let's go far this way for the purposes of going far this way. Right. Nor are we saying that people who hold to uh, these underlying things, these underlying ideas and concepts and 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 sometimes real things that are good are not inherently wrong in any sense. Right. So that's not what we're saying here. So often it
0: ends up being a matter of scope and scale and a lack of recognition of the importance of those two things. Right. What got us off on this line of discussion in the first place was an article by our friend Jake Medor at Christianity Today. What's up, Jake? Good job. That looks at the state of his home state, Nebraska, and how when the bomb cyclone, which you heard referenced in the bonus track for the last episode, which came through and dumped an awful lot of snow in an awful lot of places
1: across the U.S. Knocked uh, out Chris's power and almost ruined the whole first episode, but thanks, Audio Hijack. What's up? Hooray. It left large parts of Nebraska
0: covered in feet of water. Lot of melted snow. And sometimes that just happens with lots of melted snow. But part of what Jake got at in that piece is that it doesn't always happen that way. And that a lot of the reasons it's happened that way have had to do with the industrialization of farming and the ways that that has had long-term negative effects on soil quality, on being able to mitigate and manage runoff, and so on. Basically, it was Jake doing his Wendell Berry shtick. But this
1: time I was mostly on board with him. Hey, hey, hey. He did not mention (laughs) Wendell Berry once. And I was very proud of him.
0: But he was channeling Wendell Berry really hard there. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> but again, on in this case, as much as I give him grief about that, and I give many of my Wendell Berry fans grief about their Wendell berry he's basically right in this case, that the scale and scope of industrial farming has had serious consequences that ends up coming down on local farmers. Anyone who loves farming and wants to be a family farmer Mm -hmm. has to deal with consequences far beyond what they can possibly control because of industrial-scale farming. And it's not necessarily that any of the particular tools or implements that are used in industrial-scale farming are themselves inherently bad things. Although banking debt
1: at maximum scale is perhaps a technology that is a bad one. But other than that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But things like large tractors. They
0: they can be bad, but they're not always, and there are ways to employ them that nonetheless maintain a respect for and a regard for the natural cycles of cultivation and rest that land needs to remain cultivatable in the mm-hmm. long term and to remain healthy in the long term. But yeah. the incentives for industrial farming— don't line up to that. They line toward mass production and toward shoving out and shutting down individual farmers who do have that mentality in a rather vicious cycle in the long term. And so we started thinking about this and saying, how do you stop that? How do you bring about a view of the world broader than just those individual farmers? Because all the individual farmers by and large, are saying, this sucks. Maybe we should not do it. But they're getting literally run out of business by industrial agriculture. Right. And industrial agriculture typifies. Doesn't want to change. Yeah, they don't want to change. This is going great for industrial agriculture. This is great for them. And they typify what we described last week as the technocratic view of the world. Right. We can, If there's a problem, we can just solve it with more technology. Whereas Wendell Berry's answer, correct in this case, is, no, man. You need to do a little less, te- maybe a lot less technology. Right. You need to actually slow it down. You need to have a healthier, ongoing relationship with the land you're cultivating.
1: And to see right. it as cultivating rather than merely stripping. Well, producing. They don't yeah. see it as stripping. They see it as we have to increase production. Right. We need X number more food by 2020 or X number more <laughs> right. food by 2030 because of population. Like They see a different sort of argument Right. But the problem is that argument, while real, is so untethered from <laughs> the idea Supergirl. of the actual ground right. and the actual people who are working that actual ground that the ways that those two arguments work together is almost incommensurable. You can't really right. have ground that works in this particular way that you want it to work to do the thing at scale that you want to do. The ground does not scale. Right. And in a <laughs> in a real sense. You can't make more ground. Now you can make greenhouses and yada yada. Whatever, whatever. But like at the the logics of which industrial ag is trying to develop, the ground is having literal and physical trouble. Maintaining that. Now, there are confounding aspects here. There's climate change, like bombogenesis <laughs> is unusual. It's extremely unusual. And it's probably happening more often because of climate change. The fact that all this water has nowhere to go is, in some ways and regards, related to the changing nature of how water moves through the United States because of climate change. So, right. there's. There's a lot of confounding aspects here, and we'll get to climate changers in a minute because that was where I wanted to go with this episode, and we're still going to get there. But the underlying logics of how we think about things matter. And the problem right now is that big ag and little farming are having a logical dispute uh, different logics of production. And as Marx would be happy to tell you, usually (laughs) – Big wins in this case, uh, which is why uh, farmers should overthrow Big Ag. Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> hang on, there, Stephen. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> that that is that is the overhill part of Marx for me. Right, there's a lot of things <laughs> going up the hill that I'm with Marx on, and then there's the. Downhill part that I'm not so into, but uh, the the concept is not wrong. There there is a fundamental tension here between the ways of people producing, and the fact that they don't own various logical structures and physical structures. We talked about John Deere tractors last, right? Season, that make them predisposed to be agonistic towards big production that's trying to take them over and that sort of thing. So. To the point of this episode, what are you going to do about that? You just summarized all of critical theory in, in like, five minutes. <laughs> well, the way Good forward... Good Stephen. That PhD was worth something. Yay! That was, like, a whole semester of my life right there. <laughs> but I, I, Chris and I both think that there's value... Actually, I shouldn't say Chris and I both think, because in this <laughs> season, I have no idea whether that's true or not. <laughs> I think that one of the way forward... Is one, you have to shift the ways that agriculture, in this example, but big mm-hmm. companies in general, have their reward structure. Right. And there are lots of ways to do this. right? You can have people stop using various services. use the boycott method. That almost never works, but it has worked in the past. It's a thing. right. You can use regulation. You can use uh, strict competition, uh, which is a thing that scale is sometimes defeated by. If you go back to the very small, then you have better yields and better like margins and things like this. And so maybe getting small is good. But there's the ways that you change these logics are by competing or by regulating the ways that compete. And so... And that happens also in the public sphere, which is what Jake is doing. So carry on, Jake, you (laughs) compete. But the problem is that this has to be either a very long and concerted campaign, which we at Winning Slowly are fine with. Slowly. Or it has to have some sort of specific moment where everything is crystallized and then there's a new chapter. And... That is a particular problem for when you start looking at things like climate change, where there seem to be all of these crystallizing moments that would be fairly obvious to capitalize on, but there are big, big reasons, roughly uh, $200 million of lobbying from public oil companies per year that don't want to recognize those moments. And that becomes a significant problem for any sort of vision is the competition. So if you can't beat it, how do you unfold it? Right. One of the challenges I see there
0: is that thinking on the climate change question, so many of these things are simultaneously big, important questions of truth. And even thinking about the farming question, there are really important questions of of truth there, of how does the world actually work? I used yeah. the phrase in our last episode, the deep structure of reality. And I think I'm going to keep coming back to that, because I think it's it's real. It's sometimes hard yeah. to discern, but the world works in certain ways. Would you and say you're a realist? <laughs> we actually had a... A title for an episode many years ago called We're Idealist Realists, so we just mashed we it together even all those years we did ago. do that. It's not just matters of what we can persuade people is true, though. And I think about this often in the context of Christian discipleship, of what does it mean to live like a Christian— you can have all—I've said this often throughout the history of Winning Slowly—you can have all the right answers and still live not like a person who believes anything you say. And sometimes— Yeah, Jake
1: wrote an article about that today.
0: (laughs) Right. We'll link that as well. Jamie Smith is a philosopher at Calvin College who uses the idea of liturgy in the sense of the the rhythms and patterns of our lives. And I think this is relevant here because so often the— kinds of things we do and even sometimes the conclusions we end up landing on are in fact shaped by earlier things that we're not conscious of, the rhythms and habits of our lives. What happens to us, as we've often asked, when we're people who drive everywhere or who pull out our cell phones every time we're bored or any number of these kinds of things that end up being deep, deep shapers of the way we come at life? What happens to us when we get in the habit of eating food that we have no idea really where it came from or how it got to us? And I'm grateful for that in many ways. We'll link an article about how hamburger is actually a really complicated thing. And I ate a hamburger the other night, and I like hamburgers. But it's actually really complicated. It's basically an industrial-scale phenomenon that you can't actually meaningfully do in non-industrial contexts. But when we've gotten habituated to those ways of living our lives, then it becomes very difficult, even if we want to, to draw conclusions that are ultimately opposed to or antithetical to the deeper habits that shape the way we live. We talked about this a lot last season in the sense of forming wisdom and forming virtue. Right. But those concerns end up playing out on this kind of large scale. How do you, as— who was it that said this? I'll have to look it up later and put it in the show notes. It's difficult to get a man to see the truth of something when his salary, his income, depends on his not seeing it.
1: Yeah, that's the truth. That's we fundamentally... Call that, call that reasonable but not justifiable. <laughs> right. And that is fundamentally a reason there.
0: very much at issue and at root when we're talking about the oil industry's lobbying that's or when exactly we're right. talking about industrial ags lobbying. Those things make sense given the incentives there. Yep. And it's therefore this simultaneous question of thinking about how we point to what we believe is in fact true in these areas. Right. And also how we help ourselves, first of all, and then others, develop these ways of life that Mm -hmm. are meaningfully and distinctly different Mm -hmm. In ways that we can spread throughout our own communities and then ultimately Mm -hmm. have an impact at least locally and then hopefully more broadly than locally over time as that competing vision of a competing way of life. So in part what I would like to do here in the rest of the episode is spitball a bit about what that might look like in the context of responding wisely and well to things like big oil and climate change or industrial ag and Mm unhealthy soils because honestly i don't have good ideas but i think it's an interesting yeah this is the exercise of the season is thinking what would it look like to go from here to a better there
1: yeah well i think that there's people who are already doing some of this stuff Mm -hmm. for instance so you've got people who are big into electric cars so that's one way that we can say we reject on a personal level and uh many prius owners literally do on a personal level reject Mm-hmm. like the the oil and gas industry and the prius or the the electric car is the example by which they show this that's a thing so, you can do so you've given me permission to go get a tesla right yeah that is exactly what i just <laughs> did
0: my wife will be
1: so excited to get wait no i don't yeah. hmm. <laughs> i don't <laughs> <laughs> there's like a bunch of tesla jokes in my brain i'm just going to leave them all out <laughs> for being charitable that might be virtue signaling right like that's that's sort of the the pejorative term that we put on things like that where you're saying you don't really have a meaningful contribution you're just saying this well i think part of our argument is that virtue signaling is part of virtue like it's not pejorative it's literally a demonstration of how we want things to be now you can do virtue signaling in extremely negative ways and you can end up with very very bizarre outcomes like 43 democrats voting present on a thing that they support. So you can do virtue signaling in bad ways. But I think that one way that we have to do is we have to stop devaluing the idea of your individual contributions. So like people will mm-hmm. tell you like look, you you don't really need to worry about how much water you use or how much electricity you use like cuz you're just tiny compared to agriculture. Like it doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter. Like if you're a whole community of people that individually believe that, then like it starts to matter depending on right. the size of your community. So right. but like you don't build communities by saying it doesn't matter. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I That's think crazy talk. Right. And I think that again to point towards uh Jake's second article, which is about Reaganism, which is not the point of this, but is <laughs> is that sometimes a future is not a failure that was rejected. It was something right. that was difficult or unprofitable right. um, and profit in the monetary sense. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't tried all that hard. Right. Right. Or there are points in which, you know, there are p- points in the past in the seventies where people were really getting into things like the earth hour and, and earth day and things like this. And, Maybe they were just at the wrong time. Like I do believe in Kairos of the right thing at the right time and the ways that trajectories form and develop. And so all of those are super boring things, but I don't think they're wrong. I think that you have to go through those at least before you get to some of the more community oriented type of stuff, because if you don't have people that are formed towards those types of actions, then you don't have a community to build because you don't have people that are even aware of the sorts of things that need to happen in the space. And then the next step forward is for them to get interested enough to do something on a local scale right? and then act in a larger scale. Accordingly, Yeah, yeah.
0: And I think there are interesting ideas around just small-scale things you can do individually that then— if nothing else, challenge the norms of your community in healthy ways. So a friend of mine did his PhD in ethics at a Southern Baptist seminary, and it was in environmental ethics. And let me tell you, that is not a very common topic in seminary ethics classes or PhD studies among Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists are often caricatured as radical right-wingers who don't care anything about the environment, but the caricature sticks for a reason. Uh, yeah. And the the historic reasons for that are complicated and messy. He also gave an interesting talk at a conference a few years ago in which he explored why some of those dynamics are present.
1: Yeah, and I would, I would also argue that some of that comes from caring at a micro level to such a great degree that they don't care about right. the macro level at all, yep. which is localism. That it? is also
0: a part of it. But... One of the things he has done very practically, and he wrote this up in a blog post a couple years, and I'll link to it, is he just started doing things in his community and with his community, including his church community, that served in their local context in ways that were beneficial for the environment. They weren't massive things. They were, let's go clean up this creek, which often ends up with a bunch of junk in it. Mm -hmm. Let's... Make this a regular habit and a regular Mm -hmm. part of the rhythms of our community, Mm -hmm. to speak
1: again of liturgies. Mm -hmm. Those things shape Mm -hmm. and form us. I I would then argue that many movements end at that spot. Let's go do this and build a rhythm of our life, and let's not be concerned about the outside world. Or if we are, it's in perfunctory ways. I would argue that if you do want to make long-term change in a forward, positive vision of community, you then even if you're the only person in your group that thinks this, you have to extend your your line of sight. You, you, have right. to ex- you have to have sort of this future-going vision of how you can expand this or connect this or build other communities. And that sounds tiring, and it is.
0: Right. But in some ways, thus his blog post. Right. It's a case of saying, here is what we are doing in the local, and then explaining that to a broader audience of people who look at him and don't think... And I don't mean this as an insult to our liberal listeners, but speaking to the context he's writing to of a bunch of very conservative evangelical Christians, oh, that guy's just a liberal, which is an often kind of dismissal you see in that context of, oh, that guy's just a liberal, as a way of failing to engage, of choosing not to engage with the arguments that the person is making or the kinds of actions that they're taking, but rather taking his actions and making them explicable, making them comprehensible to the broader members of his community in that case. And I think it's that both and. If you're just writing blog posts, you are literally missing the point when it comes to needing to actually act, needing to build those Mm -hmm. rhythms into your life. Mm -hmm. But also, for those of us who have some degree of platform, whether it's the couple hundred regular listeners that we have for this podcast, thank you for listening. Thank you
1: all. Yeah, you're the best or whether
0: it is someone who has a blog that's reasonably widely read or whether it's someone who has a regular conference appearance or whatever it may be finding those ways to take that vision for the world and share it outwards i agree is super important but my my reason for emphasizing the other is that i think so often we forget that the other is equally essential yeah and that that kind of we might call it activism uh, I'm not sure I like that wording well, for it, but I think it is yeah. a kind of activism. It is it is a rejection of mere stagnance.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking about so many Anabaptist communities from the time of the Reformation, where so many of them had very good ideas, mm-hmm. and many of them tried to actionably do them out in the world and were stomped out in extremely unfortunate and terrible ways. But a lot of them, In, in part because
0: some of them had really
1: bad ideas and well, got the rest of them a bad name, which is yeah, also a phenomenon that you have to be aware of here. That's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it was a thing. But the, a, a lot of the, the turning away that then happened resulted in people who turn away. That's a thing that is a historical legacy of right. Anabaptists and their progeny forward into the current moment. Uh, in that uh, Amish and Mennonites and some arms of Baptists and these sorts of people have a a historical mandate, even, to turn away from things and to reject things. That's problematic if you want to have a forward-going vision of the future that, Hmm. especially in a context of a world that is falling apart, you can't just hold... And, and reject everything that's around you because the, the land is falling apart around you. You can't reject it. And so there's this troubling problem where if you have a historical trajectory of rejection, and honestly, we just wrote a whole season on how to reject technology, so I'm not <laughs> categorically throwing this out, but you have to be able to have a stance that has at least initially an open hand. Before you just reject things out of hand, because otherwise you you lean so heavily on this historical mandate to preserve that you the stuff going on around you is still going badly and you can reject it all you want, but it's going to take you down with it in 10 feet of water.
0: There's an interesting way of framing it. And unsurprisingly, I'm not sure I wholly agree because... I think that one of the roles that communities like those can serve for us is as prophetic reminders and as calls to a different way. And it is true that you are sometimes going to be swept up in things that you can't resist, that are too large. Pacifist communities in Europe in the first half of the 20th century got overrun in war, their yeah. own best efforts not yeah. That is a thing that happens. But— I don't think that means that those kinds of communities are themselves wrong to stake out the stances that they do. I think it probably means that they cannot be the only set of responses. But to the point we made in brief last week, and to a thing you and I have talked about often as we've thought about this season, there are actually a lot of different roles to be played in these kinds of moments. So to look at the authors we talked about last week, and specifically about Jacob's, but also about someone like Michael Mm Sacasas, there are people who are serving the role of the prophet crying from the hilltops, repent, repent. Yeah. And then there are the people whose job it is to go carry out, I think of the biblical King Josiah, who was like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to tear down every single one of these altars to gods who aren't the God that we worship. Right. And I think those are different roles. And I think that sometimes the role of Anabaptist communities or retreat, what what get labeled retreatist communities can actually be to provide the necessary counter for those of us whose calling isn't that to say, no, this isn't the only way. And they show us that it's not the only way. And maybe their way isn't the way forward for all of us, but simply by existing and being faithful They give us really helpful evidence and really helpful reminders. They do. Along those lines, Michael Sakasas made the point last year that for many of us, it is impossible, professionally or otherwise, to simply cut ourselves off from social media, particularly Facebook. And he said, that being so, there may still be a goodness of some people dedicating themselves to that. Precisely to provide that kind of prophetic witness that, no, this is not the only way to live, and to help people continue to think and remember that there are other and arguably better ways, and then to challenge and stir up people like, arguably, you and me, to do that imaginative work of saying, okay, people are finding these goods from Facebook or from industrial-scale agriculture or whatever the case may be, and to say— but clearly, this isn't the only good, and clearly, there are things about this other way of life that are genuinely better. Mm-hmm. How can we recover that for people who today have no choice but to be on facebook right and so on
1: and i and I think that's valuable and I think again there are the, i th- I see a distinction between communities that already exist and that are doing that role. The Amish are. Literally that. They are a way <laughs> of thinking about the world that doesn't exist anymore. Right. And, and they have preserved to great extent, although not without tractors, bizarrely, <laughs> a way of being that is a, a s- almost stereotypical foil at this point to this type right. of argument. Right. So I do see the value in those communities that already exist and are already doing it. But but in going forward into the future, communities that form like that are build it, need to build on that base. I mean, you could just go yeah. join the Amish if you want to, right. um, and then you could be a part of that community that's already doing that. But if you're going to build more communities, if you're going to put a positive version of the future forward, you can't just say, like, we're going to redo Amishness but not be Amish. <laughs> yes. I agree with you there. Like You you have to build on it and say, okay, this is what's good there. It tells us about how we can live. We're not going there. <laughs> We're not physically going to Pennsylvania or to <laughs> right. Minnesota or wherever they are. But we want to draw on what they've done and what does that mean for us. Right. And so that's where those local communities that you've started to go pick up trash down by the the creek – Mean something in that you said, okay? Like none of us want to become Amish right now, but we can do some things like them. We can work these practices into our community, and if that's an attractive and wholesome and healthy community, then that community is going to inevitably grow. This is what we've learned over two thousand years of community formation: is that things that are attractive are attractive. Tautology! <laughs> <Like laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, it's sometimes <laughs> surprising wrong. in history when people are like, and this attractive thing was. Really attractive, it was amazing. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, <laughs> yes it turns out <laughs> it turns out. So I think that that I'm by no means diminishing the role of the Amish and, and the Mennonite communities that are you know a step past um, Amish in the ways that they integrate into right. the society, but still provide that sort of prophetic uh, message. but that what we do going forward can't just recreate that. Yeah, um, and I Unless agree. you want to actually go and do that, which is fine. Right. You can do that if you want.
0: I think that's a, a helpful way of threading that needle. I think it's right to say that we need to be able to learn from and imitate that willingness to be genuinely, prophetically distinct and different. Yeah. To do something that might look a little weird to people around us yeah. in the interest of pursuing a, a third way, an alternative yeah. to the visions of... Uh, techno-utopianism or techno-dystopianism, as we put it last week. And so that's what we'll keep tracing out. We're out of time. No doubt we could talk about this for
1: another six hours. but We will over the course of the season. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) To put a fine point on it, one of the ways that we've traced out here of going forward and responding to people that don't want your vision of the future is to create an alternative vision of the yeah. future in a local community that's attractive and that is built around rhythms of life that oppose certain logics of those communities that are not interested in your way and to expand those local practices once you have established right. local liturgies towards the growing of of larger communities and even you know non geographically co- created Uh, communities. And that's just one angle. It's not the angle, but it's a way forward towards that end of saying, we we can't convince you to stop doing your job because that's how you get your paycheck, but we can (laughs) posit an alternative way. Right. And then explain it to people who need it explained. Exactly. So... The song at the beginning of the episode was Spring by Teen Days. I'm so Steven excited about this boy. song. I love Teen Days so much. <laughs> and his work is is excellent, and much of it relates to climate change. So I commend that to you. And please don't use it without permission, because we use it with permission, which is amazing. <laughs> I, l- I love the future. It's amazing.
0: As always, thanks to everyone who sponsors the show. Particularly this month, including Nathaniel Blaney, who is sponsoring it, the We Shout You Out on Every Episode tier. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly.
1: If you have any comments or thoughts or ideas, we'd love to hear them. Tweet at the show, at Winning Slowly. Tweet us individually, at Chris Kreitch or at Scardini, or send us an email at hello at winningslowly.org. If you send us stuff on Facebook, we're never going to get to it, let's be honest. we just Basically,
0: not. Facebook penalizes pages for anything that isn't ads, so yeah, no one even just sees not. our posts, so we're it's just a, done
1: there. It's a thing. It's rough. We're not really into it. So Allies. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.